Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Remember, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement with progress. We live in a paradoxical time where we have more comfort but less peace, more connectivity but less connection, more information but less wisdom. The purpose of this podcast is to explore these natural tensions with independent voices who will push our thinking. This is the Paradox Podcast. So it took me getting good enough at it to know how good at it I was not. It took me getting just good enough at it to know I'm not good at it at all. You can learn quite a lot from experience. That's one thing. There's something after that. Have you the will and determination to do anything about it? Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Paradox Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Tibbetts. For episode number eight, I chatted with Sahil Lavinka, the CEO of Gumroad, who's a prolific entrepreneur, writer, painter, and thinker, about the challenges of building startups and his viral essay reflecting on my failure to build a billion dollar company. We also escaped the world of tech and startups to talk about Sahil moving from San Francisco to Provo, Utah, the most conservative and religious city in America, and lessons he learned about breaking outside our ideological bubbles and engaging with people we disagree with in a friendly way. Lastly, we offered up some very amateur political analysis on the 2020 presidential race, including some surprising similarities between Trump and Bernie. Full disclosure, we recorded this episode the week before Joe Biden's South Carolina and Super Tuesday comeback, and two weeks before the coronavirus-driven stock market meltdown, so take it all with a grain of salt. Sahil's a fascinating individual, and I really loved how wide-ranging this discussion was. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Sahil Lavinga. Sahil, thanks for joining me on the Paradox Podcast You're and welcome. taking time, busy schedule, being here in San Francisco from Portland. Super excited to talk to you. We've sort of been Twitter friends, gone back and forth on yeah. Twitter, and, and you strike me as someone who's just a prolific creator across the board. Obviously, you've built companies, you've built Gumroad, you write a lot, whether it's super fire tweets, or I think you wrote a <laughs> script for a movie, and you paint. So what's the origin of being a creator, and when did all that start? Yeah, I've been trying to trace it back and find kind of like the big bang moment. And it's hard. I don't know where it is. I still don't know, like the nature versus nurture kind of question gets thrown around mm-hmm. a lot, right? And I think I've been trying to write a prequel to that viral medium essay from last year. And I've that's the kind of the premise of it is where did this come from? And I don't know. I can find moments in my life where it's like I had a friend who was really into video games and he was learning pixel art to make icons for his character. And I was like, I could do that too. Mm-hmm. I remember my mom having an internet issue and asking my brother and I felt like, why wouldn't she ask me about it? I can get good at this stuff too. And so I think there's like a competitive nature to me has always been there. And also just like a, I do really believe in like, I want to control my own environment. And if that's really important, starting a company is one of the few ways to do that. I don't think I knew that as a kid. Yeah. I didn't know what venture capital was or any of these things but i, think I didn't like, even know that when i was 18 or 19 <laughs> yeah luckily the social network came out when i was uh ah, young enough. enough that and i was like oh cool all this you know this stuff that fits kind of my my worldview in a sense but yeah i think at an early age i was like i can't work in finance a lot of the trajectory that a lot of my friends were thinking about i was like that sounds so unappealing to be 
a worker bee or whatever, like right. to just punch numbers and make a lot of money. Sure. But never been motivated, I think, by that. You know, which is funny because I wrote a post on reflecting on my failure to build a billion dollar company, which, which is, is a like, great title. Sounds like a paradox, right? Yeah, so, definitely a paradox. Um, and for folks who haven't read it yet, by the way, you should go read it. Let's say they're starting a company or they're thinking about starting a company. What are maybe the two or three takeaways from that uh, super raw and honest essay that you would want them to, to pick up? Yeah, well, this is the beauty of sharing stuff is people will tell you, right? Because mm -hmm. like, to me, it was so hard because I'm trying to compile eight years of my life into you know, a few thousand words, you know, 15, 20 minute read or something like that. But it, yeah, it was really nice. I know exactly the sentences that really struck a chord with people. And they'll highlight it, right? And they'll highlight, you know, like, yeah, they'll tweet about it separately or what have you. And so I can really kind of go through them. One was, uh, it doesn't matter how fast uh, you ship features or how amazing your team is, the market's going to determine most of your growth. Mm -hmm. That one really struck a chord. A lot of founders were like, I wish I knew this. I didn't pay attention to the market. And not that everyone should obsess over it or anything like that. And I have tweets that kind of argue that point even on my own. Yeah, because there's uh, a lot of nuance in there. You can kind 100%. of be on both sides of it. Exactly. And but I, th I think the, the thing that struck a chord was just the market is really important. And it's easy to be like product market fit. Let's just get there. That's what matters. Yep. But then you get there and you realize your market is tiny. And you're like, oh, crap, what do I do? You know, and it's just being really mindful of that it's kind of like surfing what is surfing it's yep. finding the finding wave. that wave it's not once you're on the wave like almost anyone can do it it's not totally. hard it's just like that is the hard part the wave will push you just the way the market will pull the product out of you exactly if you're riding a big enough wave james actually had a really great tweet that was kind of along these lines and shout out to james for letting us use the below the line studio but he he basically said in my 12 years of building startups i've learned that direction is so much more important than speed Yes, And that's kind yes. of getting at the same idea that you can be fast, but 100%. if you're fast on the wrong wave or you're behind the wave or you're too early, too late, yes. it doesn't really matter. Totally. hundred percent. And picking that direction Super key. is going to, I mean, obviously once you've validated the direction, you want to apply speed on top of it. But directionality is, yes. is sort of the key first. Yeah. And one of the phrases that Justin Kahn said was like, you know, first time founders focus on products, second time founders focus on distribution, which I stole accidentally or subconsciously or who knows but i think it's the same idea which yeah. is like once you've done it once you're like i'm going to spend a lot more time thinking about how this thing gets out there and gets used which is kind of market and and maybe a little bit less on product and part of it is like you figured product out so it's yeah. not like you shouldn't ignore product but i think there's so much uh dialogue about product and there's not Completely. that much dialogue about market and yeah. it's just less sexy it's less cool it's less visual and it's more businessy too. It's like more honest about we're building a business, which mm -hmm. people maybe shy away from a little bit. You want to pretend like you're in it for like just building beautiful products and stuff like that, which is just not the case for for everybody. Uh, so that's one. Another one is, you know, I have a graph of the Gumroad numbers, which are sort of like this pretty boring up into the right curve. And I say like there were times in this where we had a team of 20 working 60 hours a week and times where it was just me working four hours a week. Where is that? Mm -hmm. Like... Which is kind of similar point, but mm -hmm. basically like you, you think you have a lot more control over this ship than you do. Sure. And, you know, you might try to change the world or dent the universe, but a lot of these things are out of your control, timing, markets, like guys, who knows what, macro stuff, coronavirus, mm -hmm. et cetera. Like there's a lot of things at play here. You can try to do your best, but like, and that was just a, such a healthy realization for me because it was like, I can't. It is what it is, basically. It's somewhat liberating because right. it's like Super I can liberating. only control the things that I can control. Yeah. And there's a lot outside of my control. And I'm not going to worry about trying to. Exactly. It's a very I mean, stoic kind of attitude. It is, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think it was hard to put that in the essay, honestly, because I'm admitting my 
lack of agency in these ways you know but luckily people didn't perceive it like that they were i like, think there's is- an honesty to it that people probably gravitated to yeah because they realized like oh yeah that is true and maybe i'm afraid to admit that but now that you've admitted that you yeah. sort of created space for me to actually think and be open to the idea that yeah my agency is, is limited it's not infinite despite exactly. what the social network some of those narratives that we sort of see yeah or in TechCrunch articles or whatever it makes it sound like yeah. you know the hero founder can kind of do what they want but there are environmental constraints that exist. It's important yeah. to acknowledge that. And then I think like the third thing that really resonated broadly, those are the two, definitely the two sentences that really struck a chord. But overall, it's just like the, the, like the founder journey is like just not as sexy. It's complex. It's psychological. It's internal. It's and lonely, it, you perhaps. Know, it's lonely. It, and it takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And it often doesn't work out exactly the way you want. And that's fine. Like that's just, just kind of like know what you're signing up for. Because I never said like VC is evil. Some people took it in different ways, but it certainly like would validate certain people's viewpoints and, and, and things like that, worldviews. But I was just like, look, this is my story. Mm-hmm. I didn't even want to make a point, really. Yeah. Like, I th- and I think that's why it worked. And, you know, it went viral and all these things is because I was like, look, this is my story. It is what it is. This is my path. Yeah, it didn't fall neatly into one camp on one side of a debate. It yeah. was just like, this it wasn't is- like th- you should not build a billion dollar company or you should or like, you know, it's just like reflecting. I use the word reflecting like very purposefully because it's like trying to be as sort of like distant almost as possible. Like I want to actually strip out all the emotion. It's yeah. like, let the story speak for itself. Mm. And, and that's something that I really, I'm trying to do with Gumroad. I'm like, Gumroad, it is what it is. It's the market is going to decide to make it what it is. It's done like a living, breathing thing, like a dragon. I kind of consider it a pet dragon. Mm. I'll like feed it and do its thing, but like I will let it, let it live and breathe on its own. And uh, it'll tell me what it needs from me and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be able to try to get it for it. And, you know, but I, I like having, at least for now, I like having that kind of distance. That's Almost interesting. From yeah. My, from that my perspective company. that you obviously didn't have yet, you know, in 2011. Exactly. It's interesting too, because going back to the beginning around being a creator, they always say that like the best product to build is one that you would want to use. And mm-hmm. it sounds like that's part of the origin yeah. story of Gumroad. But as a creator yourself, it's so much easier to put yourself in the mindset of your customers because you essentially are a customer. Yeah. And so I think a lot of businesses are much harder to build and there's great businesses that are built by people that maybe aren't themselves customers. But I think one of the elements of founder product market fit or increasing your chances of having it is just actually being someone who wants to use the product. And you sort of, yeah. at least in my mind, yeah. kind of epitomize that that story of being a creator yourself, wanting to do something really simple, seeing a gap in the market and just delivering it. And yeah. um, there's something very insightful around scratching kind of your own itch like that. Yeah, and it's it's I think it's hard for people to hear because I think a lot of people want to build a business. Mm-hmm. So they're searching for that. And part of being able to scratch your own itch is you kind of just have to wait until you're itchy. Right. You know, and like, you don't want phantom itch vibrations or whatever, right? That you're like you're manufacturing so you can go build a business. And I see it, you know, in general, when you build an audience online around building businesses and things like that, people will DM me all the time, you know, being like, hey, I want to build a business. And I'm always like, why? Why? Like, let's go to the whiteboard and yeah, what do you want to something why? out? Yeah, you know, it's like, sure. You <laughs> why would you want to put yourself through that unless you really cared about the mission, right? It's just a kind of a funny, uh, people take what I say very different ways sometimes. But I'm always like, dude, just... If, if, if building a business is the answer to your problem, do it. But it's like a weird thing to seek, you know? Yeah. Um, it's like a solution in search of a problem. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of it is similar to what I talked about in the essay. And this is maybe another third thing that maybe resonates on a sentence level, but it's just like wealth and success. Uh, we tie together a little mm. bit, you know? Um, we say, oh, he's super successful. It kind of implies that they're rich. 
Yeah. And there's reasons for that too, but they're also like correlation versus causation kind of thing too as, as well. And historical injustice and all the, it's a complex subject for 100%. sure. But I think that people appreciated that a lot because I think people fall, everyone does fall into that trap. It's kind of a mimetic thing that happens. Right. And I see it all the time. in My DMS. Yeah. Like they're like, I want to build a business. I want to do a startup. I want to raise money. I want to do all these things. And I'm like, just in like, service of what? <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, you like society tells you that you want to do these things, but it's complex. Like yeah. you understand your emotional state, understanding your, your motivations and where they come from. Like, this is something I learned writing science fiction and fantasy. It's like, how do you tell an interesting story? The first thing you need is a character mm-hmm. point of view. Second thing you need is a motivation. This like, if you don't have that, you have no story. Character needs to want something. Mm-hmm. Kurt Vonnegut and there needs says, to be like an obstacle generally, right? I guess it doesn't have to be, but it doesn't have to be uh, like in certain cases, there's not like Superman might be an exception where it's like just like this insanely superpowered human. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. And you're just excited to see this all American hero solve problems. But yes, in general, like Kurt Vonnegut says, you know, character must want something, even if it's just a glass of water. Hmm. It's just, uh, that's the sort of like the core, I mean, desire is suffering, right? Like the core human, at least in Western culture, I'm not as familiar with other cultures, but in general, that's something we all struggle with. It's Completely. We, we want things, we can't get them. Um, well, we're, we're just trained societally and culturally to want. Yeah. Like, you must I mean, want that's what X, advertising is, right? Y. And it's, going back to your earlier point, I think we have incredibly narrow definitions of lots of different concepts. Success is definitely one. We conflate it with wealth. Intelligence, we conflate with, like, doing well in school on standardized tests. Yeah, high IQ or whatever. Yeah, and, and it's like, well, is the billionaire Grades. whose kids hate him successful? Like, I don't yeah. know. Is someone who got a 1600 or a 2400, depending on your age, on your SAT, but doesn't have any street smarts, you know, to, to kind of navigate their way around the city? Are they smart? There's so much more nuance and complexity yeah. in all these things, but society delivers us sort of a prepackaged artificial version that we either have to accept or reject yeah. or kind of navigate. In general, like the, it's always good to, to, you know, analyze why people are telling you these messages and typically these messages sell products. Hmm. <laughs> it's hard to sell. Uh, Clayton Christensen, RIP, says their jobs to be done, right? Right. Like there's, you can't sell something unless there's a job that someone needs to be done. And by the way, we've been around for many billions of years now, or at least humans have been around in our current state for let's say even a hundred years. Like a lot of these problems weren't problems a hundred right. years ago. We needed to create some problems. We could <laughs> sell some product as a marketer. I'm very guilty of this. Cause you, you definitely want, especially when you're a new to a category or creating a new category, yeah. Yeah. you need to lean into the pain of what you're solving. It's sort totally. of like you have to do it. Otherwise, yeah. why should the market react to what you're doing? You can kind of transition from being a painkiller to a vitamin over time. And so yeah. it's less we're killing your pain and it's more look at the good that we're adding to your life. And that's probably the path that any great brand like an Airbnb would take where initially it's, you need a place to stay at the, the DNC or RNC convention. We'll solve it for you. Yeah. So here's a, here's a blow up in a really crappy apartment. And then it switches to like belong anywhere, which is give this aspirational need to yeah. uh, travel the world and, and, and uh, like a local, exactly yeah. like a local. So it's definitely true that marketing and advertising has a job which is to to lean into people's wants and desires and expand them so that yeah. we can we can sell products and i don't think that's inherently evil i don't think it's yeah, inherently good totally it's like anything totally. it's a it's like a mix anything. it's a balance exactly but. exactly like the people that work at coke or whatever like generally like i'm sure there are there, like when you hear that thing that can pop and open like it yeah. feels amazing there's a nostalgia um, to it yeah but, but then there's like a health concern to it <laughs> So I, I, in general, believe that most people are, are like almost literally 99.9% of people are good people. 
And it's just misaligned incentives typically that create these things. But yeah, I don't know if, if everyone lived a sort of like distant, aloof kind of lifestyle and on very little, I think they'd be roughly the same happiness as they are today, maybe more. But where does all the innovation go? Right. Yeah. Like the path of innovation is not pretty often. Like there's a lot of violence, a lot of war. Yeah, and, and, and of none of this stuff things. is is guaranteed. Disruption like, is a negative. Li- living order. in a semi-free society—that's the anomaly, not yeah. the rule. If you read history, and exactly. So, so and innovation is not guaranteed. Economic growth is not guaranteed. So, yeah, um, and we haven't even dealt with like what happens when populations start decreasing in size, because mm-hmm. that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And like, like our entire system is predicated on the idea that you buy a house that will be worth more because scarcity. Some, some either People some greater worth. fool or some future citizen that yeah. will have the money to do it will be able to exactly. buy it that's a That's an assumption that uh-huh. we have been able to use for the, since the beginning of humanity, but we, sure. are, we will see. We're even like seeing, I think, the early stages of it. You look at Western Europe with declining birth rates. I think the United yeah. States probably relatively yeah, has Singapore a... Yeah, Singapore is dealing with it now. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're kind of on the Japan. precipice of starting to experience what that looks like. You're in a world where there's negative interest yeah, rates. Guys strange, like Warren Buffett yeah. are like, I never really even thought about being in a situation where there's low inflation. You're losing money by living. But you're paying yeah. someone to hold your money. And there's like it, it was just kind of an absurd thing that he probably didn't think about 30, 40 years 100%. ago. 100%. I think that's one thing I have learned. It's sort of like a tangent, but I think as society, we could appreciate the problems more deeply. I think it's easy to be like, oh, like healthcare. And I think everyone basically agrees that healthcare in this country is broken, but it's complex. And I think a lot yes. of people are like, oh, the answer is this. It, mm-hmm. It's easy. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. It's no. not. It just isn't. I, I really believe that if it was easy, it would have happened already. Yeah. Like, there's a reason that it's difficult and we should appreciate it. And we should also appreciate the recency of it. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes I want to, at some point, do this list of problems that we think about on a daily basis and and sort of pinpoint when it started being a problem, kind of like what you're talking about with the advertising thing. Yeah. One of the big things I learned living in Provo was like every th- thing I thought I was sure about, they have just as good, if not better, counter arguments. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's an awesome segue, too, because I really, I, I love your essay about the Gumroad journey. I think everyone should read it, especially anyone that aspires to be an entrepreneur. But- for me personally, the essay that you've written that really, really grabbed me and I thought was just really interesting and unique was this essay called From Bubble to Bubble, where you talk about going from very liberal, very secular San Francisco yeah. to very conservative, very religious Provo, Utah. I think you said in the article it's the largest and most conservative uh, city over 100,000 people in the United States or something. Yeah, like it's that. The, most, the most conservative city in America. So that's fascinating because we've, especially in the wake of the 2016 election, where things mm-hmm. went differently, certainly the media narrative suggested, and much differently than a lot of individuals expected, there was a lot of retrospective around oh, wow, maybe I live in a little bit of a bubble. Maybe yeah. I live in my own alternate reality where I yeah. look at Breitbart, Fox, <laughs> or Rush Limbaugh, or I look at, you know... Rachel Maddow. Rachel Maddow. Yeah. So I think I think there was a lot of thinking around it, but I don't know anybody that literally picked up and moved to Utah from San Francisco. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. Can you talk about just what inspired you to make that pretty dramatic yeah. move? Yeah, honestly, something incredibly inconsequential which is i wanted to learn how to write science fiction and fantasy i mean i had already wanted to leave san francisco uh so it's complex but yeah i wanted to take the science fiction fantasy writing class by this author that i really like brandon sanderson and i wanted to live in a conservative place and so i applied for this class i was still in san francisco and totally intended to stay maybe do a little bit of traveling or whatever but certainly not move to it like an incredibly conservative and religious place like provo is and then i got in and i was like i'm a hypocrite if i don't say yes to this because i'm kind of 
signaling like everybody kind of was signaling at that time that like we're open more open-minded than we think and this and that and it's like i have to i have to do this like i don't need to be in san francisco we got Mm -hmm. rid of the office like i literally this is like perfect like all the stars kind of aligned yeah and it's like if i don't say yes to this opportunity now like i'm I'm a hypocrite i'm never going to do this again so i was like cool sure i'll do it and so i moved not really intending to stay as long as i did i was there for two and a half to three years but it was phenomenal and i agree with you like i think that essay the i can see why they're reflecting on my failure to build a million dollar companies the, the more successful well ones. especially given like the audience your audience yeah, on twitter exactly. and so forth and i get it that's the stuff but that, from bubble to bubble is like i would say kind of like the deep cut the the thing that i wish everyone that read that other one would read especially now especially where, now especially if bernie wins the nomination totally if it's a bernie versus trump oh showdown my gosh. Oh i mean my it's gosh. it's Someone had a great, uh, not to overly reference Twitter, but someone had a great tweet. It was like, 2016, I don't know any Trump voters. 2020, I don't know any Bernie voters. 2024, I don't know any Kanye voters. It was just continuing to (laughs) build, which is hilarious. Uh, It's interesting, because I've supported Bernie since 2015, Mm -hmm. and very few of my friends are fans of him. Yeah. uh, Because my friends are, in general, pretty affluent people. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Full disclosure, I'm not a fan of him. But yeah, no, all the more reason why I think what I'm a big champion for, and if this podcast can do anything, I love the idea that we can just sit and have a conversation and disagree. And it's not emotional at all. I mean, I grew up in a more conservative part of California, Southern California, certainly not Provo, Utah. Yeah. But I went from there in like a Christian high school. So I kind of did the reverse. And I went to UC Berkeley where my political science professors were like definitely pretty Marxist and was not certainly a religious friendly place at all. And it was one of the best experiences of my life. It was fantastic. Yeah. That's the thing that I did notice when I wrote this and the kind of the feedback. It was like, you did this amazing thing. And I'm like, this thing that I did, actually the other side does all the fucking time. Like Mm. you have conservatives move to San Francisco every day and it sucks for them. San Francisco is not a super open-minded place on many levels, especially on religion. And so this thing that you're hailing me to do, you can help make this easier for other people. Sure. And you don't even need to move to Provo. You can just be open-minded and reach out to people that maybe think slightly different to you in your own city. Totally. 91% voted for Hillary Clinton. And I'm not saying that's wrong. Uh, I I voted for Hillary Clinton too, but like there's definitely this holier-than-thou mentality kind of a different form of religion maybe in a sense and you know i'm sure that nine percent was not having fun that time you know and felt yeah. evil like de- demonized and that's right. like not healthy i think totally. general in society to do that i totally agree it's probably one of my greatest concerns in society is just the degrading of the marketplace of ideas the public discourse and you, there's an alternate universe where 91 percent of san francisco still voted for hillary clinton nine percent did not but there's a true, and I mean liberal in the truest sense, open-mindedness, totally. uh, wanting to really explore the other side. I'm fascinated by people that I disagree with. But going back to the Provo, Utah thing, so what were some of the conversations you had with obviously these largely very conservative, not universally, because again, probably like a similar percentage of people voted for Hillary and Provo as voted for not yes. Hillary in yeah, San Francisco. Exactly. Yeah, 13%. What, what were like a couple examples of a conversation that you had with someone who maybe had different views than you, or it was kind of like a light bulb moment where you're like, oh, these people aren't bad. They're just thinking about something differently and they have an yeah. entirely different context and mental framework for how they approach everything. Yeah. So I think there's a few different types of that happening, right? So one was a full agreement on thought, like what was inside our heads and our intention, but like a different words being used. So I would meet people and be like, oh, we totally agree on this issue, but you're using pro-life and I'm saying pro-choice, but we actually agree. Mm-hmm. That was shocking. Yeah. Because I was like, 
no, you're not pro-life. And he's, I, I, I think what happened was I had explained my view and he's like, oh, you're pro-life. How did you live in San Francisco being pro-life? And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Total. Like, and he was go- like calling someone like just like a terrible word. You know, I was like, I'm not pro-life. What the-? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm very, like, I have the view that most people have in San Francisco. And, yeah. and, they're, and they're like, but I thought pro-choice meant like always. And I'm like, no. Right. I thought pro-life meant never. And this is no. such a great example of how. And I was like, oh my gosh. We speak, how do you solve we this speak past each other because we're armed with this language yeah. again that, a, that a, is designed to like. To take away that. some of the political stuff and use like a tech example. Yeah. It's similar to like this happened around Christmas time. Jason Fried said, you know, if you're being asked to work nights and weekends, they would basically try to make you work all the time you had this is mm. a, a crappy situation and then a, this other person said you know people that don't work 60 hours a week oh that's right the hard work debate of the hard December 20 yeah that was massive everyone that was one huge yeah it was kind of funny how big it became actually i guess that's what happens on the holidays no one no one uh wants to talk to their family <laughs> yeah but uh it was interesting because it was the same thing like they actually were not arguing no totally fundamentally different things mm-hmm. someone was saying if you want to be successful, you're going to have to work really hard and work 60 hours a week. And right. Every, what he actually said was anyone that's been successful has worked 60 hours a week in their 20s, something like that, yeah. which is probably true. Yep. Also, everyone agreeing with that, founders and CEOs, or at least early employees had equity in whatever they sure. were building, right? Jason Fried had said nothing about that. He said, if an employer asks you to work nights and weekends, if there was more time, they would ask you to work that too. Sure. No equity, no ownership work it's just fundamentally different conversations. they're separate mutually exclusive yeah. ideas that actually don't even necessarily conflict but they, they got don't actually conflict at they all, got turned opinion. into two narratives and but it, it was, was like, like there's like work hard yeah 60 hour a week side and then there's the you know 40 hours or less or anything else is evil but actually no one in my opinion it was basically a bar fight but no one was fighting it was just mm. like Everyone agreeing over here and everyone agreeing over here and this like tension existing. Yeah. And I just see that all the time. It's kind of the same thing. I feel like there people think there's a fight happening. Sure. I don't know the answer to this. I was thinking about writing an essay at some point called how to disagree on the internet or software people for people who disagree. And I, I literally couldn't figure it out. Mm. <laughs> so that's where I stand. It's a hard challenge. Yeah. But, but basically I was like, people want this. And this is the, the thing that we have to acknowledge in society is actually people want to look at my tweets and remove the nuance yeah. or, or assume that I I'm stupid or, or whatever, because that's this group of people wants. That. I think it's kind of a cheap replacement for meaning. I think there's been a little bit of a struggle around yeah. meaning and purpose. And so like, yeah. I'm going to fight on behalf of this yes. cause that I believe in or this uh, yeah. perspective. I think that's a good way to put it. To, yeah. On one hand, you could say less charitably, you could say to virtue signal, but more charitably, you could say these people are actually, to give them a little credit, are searching for something to fight for, They're, which actually sense. is not inherently a bad thing. It just yes. is channeled in the wrong direction at times. Yeah. And some of the tactics and are obviously they not They believe great. that it's in the right direction, but like I would say, you know, maybe your time would be better spent canvassing or, yeah. or, or, well, I don't know. But yeah, but you're right. I think that's exactly right. Like I, I actually think these people would normally be social activists in different ways. And mm-hmm. this is just a new outlet for them. Yeah. And that's, that's how we should look at it. And I, I met with the mayor of Provo who I helped become a congressperson actually now. Oh, interesting. Uh, for, yeah. Uh, that's like something I haven't really talked about just cause like I would get roasted for you, helping. You helped. A, you helped Republican. from like a kind of like a marketing campaign yeah, strategy and like standpoint. Technology and oh, like cool. Just like strategy and stuff. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm sure you would have won without me. It's not like I, but I, w- I was actually going to run for that seat against Jason Chaffetz and then Jason Chaffetz oh, stepped down. Fascinating. It was like my Provo side project because I was going to. I would have loved to see that. Yeah. So my, my, now it would actually be much more compelling because I actually have like a much larger audience than I did back then. But basically, my plan was to, to run 
and sort of to kind of what I do with Gumroad, just kind of take this like super unique, transparent, open, tiny team approach yeah. to it. Yeah. And then open source everything. That's it's like all the technology I used to run, all the strategy, yeah. just open source it all. So that's so the same way you run. have like public board meetings, yeah. your financial 100%. transparent with Gumroad, take that same approach to Washington. By the way, I, I still that, intend to do that. I think that would be incredibly point. appealing. And I actually, I don't know to what extent you and I may or may not disagree on particular policy yeah. issues. I would vote for you just because again, the medium is the message. Exactly. Like the approach yeah. is so fundamentally different and yes. interesting to me. Yeah. And my main beef really is sort of with incumbency and probably the large centralization of government and anyone, even if I disagree with them on particular yeah. issues that would actually take a spotlight and transparency into yeah. the halls. Of and Congress, I actually, I wouldn't, I would vote for, I wouldn't have a single, you could not disagree with me. It would be impossible because my whole platform, <laughs> my whole platform, I have this all figured out. My whole platform would be, I have an app. You, we have this voter file connection. So we know you're a registered voter Yeah, and I vote the way you want me to hmm. all the time. Every time you're like just direct, one hundred percent direct representative. This has happened a couple times. Like Brazil has one yeah. or two of these, and they have this kind of model. And and it's like, look, like I'm gonna spend all of my time because this is what I find. I do believe this. Like my job is to educate you. If I really believe that my mm-hmm. my constituency is wrong, and this is what I when I helped a Republican become congressperson, I was like, look, I like this guy. I think he's an honest, good yeah. dude. He he votes party line because it's it's a fucking. It's what you do. You have to do it. All the, the incentive structures to, force you to do and, it. And, 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 and demonizing him is just ineffective. And he had a lot of liberal support because he was much more sort of like, quote unquote, left liberal. He's, I'm definitely conservative, but like versus more moderate or whatever, yeah. right? Like more moderate kind of thinker. And he was like, look, all of you don't vote for me if you want me to vote Democrat. I'm not going to do that because mm. I'm, I don't want to lie to you. You know, and I think that's really healthy. Hmm. And I had all these second order effects of if you can build like a a representation of semantic map of everyone, then you can actually build instead of doing town halls, you could do dinners and organize community events where people are look, stop art talking to me. I'm just the conduit for where you're talk to each other talk to each other. That's the solution. here. And look, if you don't like it, I'm sorry, but 80% of my constituents want me to vote for this. Yeah. Like that's just. Yeah, it's like get in the town square, sit around the dinner table and have a, have a neighborhood barbecue Way better and start hashing it Twitter. out. And it's almost like a, I know the caucuses recently were a, a disaster from yeah. a technology standpoint, but imagine yeah. a 24-7, 365 caucus where on any yeah. given issue, correct. Um, and guess what? people could influence and it's it actually, they know it will impact your vote because you're literally voting directly based and, upon what's, yeah, and the, what's being expressed. The third order effect of it is you would know how everyone's voting all the time. Because it mm. is a 24-7 caucus system. Mm-hmm. So when the vote happens, it's yeah. not like, oh my gosh, who's going to win this? It's like, no, we already know where everyone stands. Why? Because every, it, you don't have to pay for polls anymore. Because mm-hmm. you have you have the representative data all the time. So I think there's there's a huge... And one day... I, I would, think a fourth order effect to, is it could totally break the stranglehold of the two-party system. I always think of it this way. We don't technically have a two-party system, meaning there's nothing in the Constitution no, that says correct. you must have two parties. We, we have a system have that lends itself to the rise of two parties because of first past the post and you know winner take all. Correct. And um, a single president. And 100%. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. if you had 535 representatives that were operating in this way, and obviously you would start with yeah. a beta test, which would be a single candidate. Maybe exactly. it spreads. Maybe it becomes its own caucus within you know 100%. like the, the transparency caucus or whatever. Yeah. And you can only be a part of it if you literally have to vote the way that yeah. you Yeah. And it's, by but the way, you it's would, fully you open. Would, you, would, you would actually, that's actually one of the most interesting approaches short of structural change at say the amendment level yeah which is to to start to weaken the this because i think honestly if it's if we look at what's going on bernie versus trump 
part of the narrative is like people are sick of the establishment. Yeah, 100%. that's obviously the yeah, takeaway from that. <laughs> they're sick of the Democrat establishment. They're sick of the Republican establishment. They're sick and, of rich experts telling people what to think and do. One hundred percent. So yeah. I love. Uh, so would, could you theoretically I mean, run in Portland or somewhere in Oregon? Or is that I don't a know if it would. The, yeah. So the the thing that was appealing about Provo specifically, again, it was kind of coincidence and happenstance that Jason Chaffetz was universally hated by everybody because mm-hmm. of, he was just like a super like no one really liked him and he'd stepped down. Or he hadn't stepped down, so I was like, oh, I can run against someone. He had one foot into the Fox News studio. Yeah, I'm sure he did for a while. But then when he resigned, I was like, I can't do this because it's going to be an open seat with legitimate candidates it was like a unique thing. you needed like an insurgency campaign exactly it's like a kind of like aoc foil. right like mm-hmm. she f- was really like she found a seat that was perfect for I mean, she won on eight thousand votes which is what you can do when you're running for congress yeah. in a primary system it's funny because you see these reports of you know everyone's paying attention to the iowa caucus and this and that it's like thousands of people yeah tens of thousands of people max right like right. i think nevada's like twenty five thousand people it's voted or something it's like tiny it's a caucus right it's like tiny yeah. tiny tiny and we're all like you know 300 million people like, <laughs> And which kind of like it's just trying like, to read the tea leaves and the exit polls with a few thousand people is kind of absurd. that's how bored we are. I know that's how how deeply in search of conflict and meaning and purpose yeah. I think like society is. It's honestly a lot of our problems are solved and we yeah. just have a lot of time. Yeah, uh, and we don't know what to do. I, th- yeah. I do. I sort of fundamentally believe that. So I would love to run. Maybe I don't yeah. know if I do it in Portland. Yeah. Um, one day though, like I, I will talk about it because I'm like I don't I don't need ownership of this idea. Actually, like I want the opposite of that in this context. Right? Well, and this is the idea of the reluctant founder, the reluctant politician. Is yeah. you want this idea or this this movement to sort of exist? You don't care if you yourself uh, yeah, do it. In fact, your yeah. preference probably in some ways yeah. is not to do it. But to get 100%. the idea out there um, it might have is to one be. thing. It yeah. might have to be you to push well, the, the idea forward. Yeah. When I was in Provo and I was trying to focus, I'm like, look, like to to build what I want to build, you'd have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on uh, designers, engineers, Silicon Valley sort of people, really mm-hmm. good people that get paid a lot of money. Mm-hmm. The only way you can avoid this is me because mm-hmm. I am that person. I'm, yeah, you're the all in one engineer, candidate, designer, yeah, like, entrepreneur. Yeah. And guess what? I have a business that pays my bills for me mm-hmm. that I actually can't, don't have to work on 40 hours a week. So it's like kind of the stars are mm-hmm. aligning. But again, I like, I'm like, I'm patient. Well, consider me you know? your your first, well, one of your first supporters. Awesome. I'm fascinated by this idea. Yeah. We can, a, talk, we can talk about that literally like the rest of the podcast. I yeah, think one thing on. I also want to talk about too is you mentioned in the piece that you started going to church every day. Yeah. I'm assuming it was LDS in, in yeah. Provo. Totally. What was that like? And do you still, do you still go? Or? I don't go that much, honestly, anymore. I don't know. I should. It was easier in Provo for sure. Uh, there's just so much. Everything's gravity. organized around it, right? 100%. Yeah. But yeah, my, my thing was like, I'm here. I might as well kind of gonzo journalism it, you know, like just go in as yeah. go deep. And it was amazing. And it was so important because I think church does one of the things that doesn't really exist out here, which is you're forced to hang out with people you normally would never want to. And that's really important. And like, that's what community, in my opinion, almost is. Networks allow you to pick and choose your filter bubble and communities don't. It's like you're in this group of people because you all love Ultimate Frisbee and that's you have to take the good with the bad. And yeah. There's probably a few bad is, apples and it you, does what you it is. hate this one person, even yeah. though you're on the same team, you just clash or whatever. And that makes you stronger. And that's so important about politics too. I think it's finding deeper connections so that you can yep. talk about these other things without, you know, holding on to this deeper relationship that you have. And so church was phenomenal. And I, I really learned, I think a lot about one, how people think, because I understood the surface level behavior kind of stuff, but really figuring out like why they behaved a certain way and their, mm-hmm. their intentions and mm-hmm. what they prioritized and, what they think about was super key, I think, to really understand that cultural context. 
and it took a long time to really even get into like oh that's why like it's so buried in there sometimes yeah that you're like oh that's why this weird thing that i didn't even notice was really weird that's why you do it that way you know totally well it's such like a huge it's perhaps the biggest input into their worldview yeah that to not actually go and experience it you're sort of missing a piece of your provo experience if you don't if you don't go to the the church yeah you are 100 percent. it is like the thing i mean you are your whole life is sort of like if there's like a tentpole kind of cadence you are hinged on that uh that weekly church session and 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 some of the other events that happen sort of that come out of that too sure you know and it's interesting too in a world where we've got crumbling institutions right now trust in institutions is at an all-time low like you name it that's kind of an example or at least a pretty localized example in utah the institution is still quite strong and and families and communities and neighborhoods are organized around the least certainly the least sort of diaspora occurring generationally like i feel like every religion is taking a huge hit Mm mm-hmm and I feel like even atheism is going to take a huge hit, actually, yeah. and go to sort of agnosticism or spirituality or some of these other things. Definitely. We're but, seeing that with sort of the unbundling of all the religious yeah. elements in San Francisco. Yeah. We both talked about this yeah, uh, online, but it's like, it's like you're meditating while you're praying and, and you're, you're fasting. You're abstaining well, from certain. You're not the first person to fast. <laughs> People have been doing it for thousands of years. And, you know, it's like, yeah. and so there's, there's deep religious roots around all this stuff. It, yeah, it's interesting because yeah. I grew up in a Christian household went to public school for middle school, but then as I mentioned, a Christian high school. And then very much in my 20s, kind of walked away from it. Faith, mm-hmm. not entirely, but it was not something I was actively pursuing at all. Yeah. And just in the last maybe, certainly three years, but maybe three to five years, and I think probably a big driver impetus for this was my wife got pregnant and we have now two-year-old. She's gonna be two years old yeah. next week. But I think I, for something about that experience of not happy being birthday. in control. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you. Her name's Finley. You can say happy birthday to, happy to birthday, Finley, Finley and she can listen to this when she's old <laughs> enough. But I started getting back into it and kind of reading it with totally different eyes. I mean, my high school self was like, I don't want to go to church. I want to stay home. This is boring. I'm reading this stuff. I don't care. And then reading some of this stuff with 30-year-old eyes, I'm like, oh, wait, this is quite, this is different because I have a whole different perspective. Yeah. And incidentally, the church that I sort of attend, and I'm using quotation marks, is actually, it's based in Charlotte, North Carolina. So I've only been one time. Mm. It's just a non-denominational Christian church. In fact, what's so interesting about the church is you can't categorize it because it's so, uh, it's a multicultural church. So it's like, it's not a black church or a white church, which in the South is kind of a big deal. Mm. It's not a young church or an old church. Mm. It's hard to put it in a box. And so I literally just watched the sermons on YouTube like once a week, That's like all awesome. this beyond the Bart, you know, yeah. with my coronavirus mask <laughs> watching the sermon. And it's kind of whenever I can fit it in. It doesn't need to be Sunday from like time X to time Y. Yeah. So I think religion is going to definitely go through some metamorphosis in terms of the form it'll probably break outside of the walls i think the institutions again a lot of the institutions they're run by people who are flawed and so people are looking to kind of shake things up a little bit which i don't think is inherently bad no i think it's great i think decentralization and agency agency is kind of the core i feel like value of conservatism Mm -hmm. and i have a lot more appreciation i think for people wanting that the sort of reaganism kind of mentality i think individualism is like a i mean it's like what trump and bernie are kind of both running on i think to a large degree even though i think a lot of people think they're not it's like they're i think bernie and trump actually would like oh completely 
And there's also, there's a populist streak through both of them. And there's areas where Trump completely... They're both from New York. Yeah. I, I actually think this is maybe one of my contrarian takes for, for this podcast is I think Trump actually absolutely does not want to get into a war. I think in some ways compared to some of the yeah. neocons, the hawks in the Republican Party that are constantly drum beating for war in Syria, war in Iran, I actually think despite maybe some of the rhetoric, which I think is more of a tactic, mm-hmm. I think he actually really wants to avoid war because he views it as just a plunder on our domestic ability to do anything and he's all about like spending lots of money and the deficits are really big which is yeah. which is which is not great but there's there's actually some commonalities between yeah. trump and bernie which you can't you can't say that to a bernie or a trump supporter because their heads explode yeah but i think you and i both kind of see that you know and the, the 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 major one is like things are screwed right now yeah you know and like things are messed up the american president's job is to help the american people yeah and i think that's like the fundamental like alignment that they have and i love like a clear mission statement like that because you can point out all the ways in which the government doesn't do that sure and it's unbeatable i mean it was almost unbeatable in 2016 and like if bernie doesn't get the nomination i think that would be the worst thing i know a lot of people don't think he will or don't want him to i personally think he will i think i think he will especially now because the the votes are just getting split up on the more you know centrist side of the party and the only thing that could potentially happen is if literally everybody drops out except Bloomberg or something like that you know something crazy like that Mm -hmm. but i do think if the democrats do not nominate bernie it's only gonna get worse the people that don't like that streak it's not going away yeah so it'll it'll strengthen it and enrage it, and it, on some yeah, level, 100%. I think this is where 100%. I agree with Naval's tweet. He actually called it four years early, yeah. but he was basically, and I was funny because I had some replies that I went back and I read. I'm like, oh, what was I thinking in <laughs> May of 2016? But he's basically Bernie Trump is the race that the people want. It is, and it, and it is 100. And I think where maybe I'm critical of both Bernie and Trump, and it goes back to something you said earlier, which I think is very relevant, is and all politicians do this. So this is not to cast blame on them in particular, but. They pretend the solutions and the problems are simpler than they are. Yes, so they're both putting yeah. their finger on something yeah. which is true, which is that some things are, are not right. Some things are broken yeah. systemically and we need to fix them. We have very maybe different views on how to get there, but there is a large consensus, even with an economy that's doing, I think, by the numbers, supposedly yeah. well. There's more nuance. There's more underneath the surface. There's more discontent, disease with life in general. Yeah. And the big lie yeah. is just pretending that the solution yeah. is easy because it's not. 100%. You know, people have their own takes on it. A lot of it goes back to that behavior intention thing. Like, I believe Bernie is incredibly logical, smart thinker. And if you listen to his radio interviews from 30 years ago, he he said the same stuff he says now except he has all of these nuances. Like he's been fighting for Medicare for all for 30 years. He's, well, I mean, I'll, again, I'm not remotely a Bernie supporter, but he's incredibly consistent. He's super consistent. I believe that he believes. It's like the believes. reluctant politician. Yeah. I mean, this guy literally has been saying the same like, thing. Not to knock Hillary Clinton, but I just didn't, everything felt poll tested. And yeah. I think that's I, part of why it didn't yeah. sort of work, yeah. especially relative to Trump. And I think Bernie, love him or hate him, the guy believes what he believes. Totally. And it's, you know, it's like anything. I believe... I, it's sort of the overturn window, right? Like uh, you ask for a loaf, you get a crumb. You ask mm-hmm. for a crumb, you get nothing. That's the line that Bernie uses. Sure. He even says it. I mean, he said this in 2016. I don't know if he's used it in this race, but he was like, look, I literally don't even want what I'm asking for. Yeah. But you have to ask for it. You know who I think also does that? <laughs> Trump. Trump. 100% Trump. I think in the campaign, he was saying absurd stuff like we're going to deport 12 million. No, no. He just starts with an extreme position and then just works his way in yeah. to get what he wants. And you can argue about whether that's good or bad. I mean, it's but, like what you do in any negotiation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that is one of the one of the things that he ran on. He's, he's a good negotiator. Yeah. The thing that I tell people is just, I don't know. 
yeah. enough. Like we can argue <laughs> about whoever, but like we just don't like if Bernie becomes president, we just don't know what's going to happen. Right. And we didn't know the same thing with Trump. Like we just didn't know. It was a total exactly. wild card. Like I think that any certainty right now is ignorance in my yeah. opinion because yes i've seen the arguments and like there's no way any democrat could beat trump and if i had to bet money i would probably say trump 2020 but i'm not gonna bet money because no, no one knows no one knows we're in a post certainty yeah situation sure. and i think actually i mean it seems like trump wants to run against bernie but bernie's got a movement yeah. And so, I mean, Trump has movement too. That's kind of why he won. Yeah. So I don't think, yeah. I don't the think thing that I learned in Provo, you want to run a movement. There's an insane amount of Bernie supporters because the thing that Bernie does, I think that is going to be really powerful is he doesn't yeah. really talk about sexism, racism. Oh, the identity politics. He doesn't, thing. Yeah. he really doesn't get into it. He gets a lot of flack for it, but he doesn't talk about it. And he says, I'm not saying those things don't matter. I'm just saying, let's fix the economics of this sure. thing and the rest will take care of itself over time. And, and the I, funny thing I is, I actually people. like that position. Yeah. I don't like the policy outputs that sprout from that for him. Yeah. But I like the idea that, look, this is actually something that Bernie and I probably agree on. We just have wildly different views on how to get there. Yeah. Socioeconomic diversity and mobility is a huge, huge yeah. problem. Like we need to solve it. It doesn't yeah. matter if you're conservative, moderate, liberal. We need upward we need mobility to work on is it. like this one of the most important. Believing, yeah. Yeah. Believing the American dream. I mean, basically, yeah. right? Yeah. So I think. I think people underrate. If you go back and look at the Democratic primaries in 2016, like Hillary versus Bernie, yep. Hillary won every city and Bernie sweeped, like sweeped. The outskirts. All the rural. All, all the rural. All vote, the yeah. rural. Obviously, you're looking at rurals who are voting Democrat, right? So it's sure. A, it's not a huge amount of people. I'm not going to bet again, but like I think people might be underestimating. But the, the truth is, like when you live in a, a city like San Francisco, you are incredibly socially liberal and pretty financially conservative yeah. more likely than right like you're kind of a bloombergy type supporter totally but if you had to kind of like turn the city into a person but the truth is america is the exact opposite mm -hmm. america is actually probably much more financially fiscally liberal than most people in san francisco would actually like the alignment is probably quite mm -hmm. strong and much more socially culturally conservative way more culturally and socially conservative which honestly for most san franciscans is like the worst news because we want yeah, I'm speaking we very broadly, right? But like a lot of the identity, quote unquote, identity politics stuff sort of tie up a lot of our social dialogue. And the truth is you're going to lose most of those battles because yeah. some of these issues, like when I moved to Provo and I'm like, why don't we do this? And they're like, that's 0.01% of the population. Why yeah. do you, what, like, why is that your focus? And yeah. it's like, huh? Uh, yeah, I guess I don't never, you know, it just is what we, <laughs> you know, like, and I wish if, if that's one thing I could brainwash everyone on i'd be like let's forget about this for five years solve a bunch of, of fiscal problems and then we can start worrying about this stuff again because honestly i just think it is having a negative mm -hmm. uh net negative outcome on the problems that we want solved yep. because the, the the reaction to them is so strong so for the last portion of the podcast these are questions that i ask every guest but you can take them in any direction that you want sure. the first one's kind of a riff on the now famous peter teal yeah. interview question yeah uh, but what's something and you've you've already hit a couple of these so yeah. you're, you're <laughs> coming up with another one may be challenging but yeah uh, what's something you believe that most people don't and i'm sure you have many views yeah that fall into this category yeah I, I would say i think cities are overrated i would say most people believe cities are awesome and, and like the future and certainly we're in one and i love cities but i think i think we'll see over time and i'm, I'm speaking 50 100 years i'm not speaking like you know one or two election cycles from now, I think the cities will be overrated. I, I liken it to colleges. People come sort of 
learn a bunch, network, mm-hmm. start their career. But I, I think, especially if you want children and these things yeah. that we do want, like 99.9999% of people want children yeah, or something close to that order of magnitude. Like there is a lot of appeal in living in the middle of nowhere. I also think it'll be great for climate change, no commutes, more sustainable. I'd say I would bias towards the city ideal because I was like, a, I mean, grew up in, I was born in New York, grew up in Singapore, LA for school. At San Francisco. Like, and then I moved to Provo. Yeah. And it was like, it's kind of nice, yeah. you know? And yeah. I was like, I can go to the butcher. I can raise my own chickens. I can cook. I have this huge kitchen. I'm paying 800 bucks a month for this. I'm free with my car. I can go anywhere. Yeah, internet access. Like, so, I mean, that's that's yeah. all kind of unique. So I think I think what we'll see is like a lot of the city services that we do like will make their way out there. Sure. Like a distributed. And then I, I just think the second order effects of that would be really great in terms of if you want to spread liberal yeah. ideology, if you're sort of that type of person, like... That's not happening. Yeah. And it's all, by the way, like you kind of spread certain liberal and conservative tenets. It's kind of yeah. weird. It's, it's almost like it actually takes the political spectrum and it just like kind of just totally mixes like melts it, it because yeah. great for climate change. Great for, I mean, certainly things like yeah. traffic, but uh, also like rural quality of gun, life, oh, gun ownership. Like there's a lot there. Totally. That c- cities, I think just become this liberal thing and rules become conservative thing. And we need to break that mentality. I agree. Uh, we need to distribute. I mean, they're just the way America is set up. Like, Honestly, liberals are screwed. Right? I, I I tend to agree with you. I lived in the peninsula. I've actually never lived in the city. I've lived all over the Bay Area for the last 15 years. Never lived in San Francisco, but obviously worked there for a long time. And we just moved a year ago, my wife and my daughter and I, to uh, the East Bay. And it's the same thing. It's like my commute into the city is an hour, but we're way closer to Tahoe. She's from the Central Valley, which is a totally different culturally yeah. part of part of the state. Yeah. So I agree with you, but I guess to push back a little bit, yeah, the people do. that are bullish on cities, I think what they would say is, over the next 500,000 years, there's going to be hundreds of new cities. Yeah. And cities will actually replace maybe larger states and countries who are yeah. struggling at kind of the federal level, yeah. struggling at that scale even yeah. more. And that cities will provide optionality so you can kind of vote with your feet, move where you want. Yeah. And it's certainly like in Africa, Asia, yeah, that might be where most of these cities sprout up. But I think the bullish case for cities is there's yeah. going to be more of them. They're going to be built in a different way than say yeah. the San Francisco's of the world, which are having problems, yeah. or yeah. Uh, you know the Beijing's or the Moscow's or what have you, yeah. uh, that are so burdened by the onerous political system. Yeah. What would you respond to people that say yeah. that about cities? I, I think that could be right. I think what we'll end up seeing is we'll both be right. Yeah. Like, well, there will be a weird way that we live to us would be incredibly foreign. Sure. And it somehow means we're both correct yeah. somehow right well, that's like kind of what we kind of want both to be right yeah you want, I want cities, them both to be great you want cities to I, be great and yes. cities need innovation and disruption and so new cities correct. competing with I other want cities, mobility yeah is, is a good thing but then the ability to be like you know what i'm gonna live in middle of nowhere st- yeah i'm gonna like, live in i'm gonna live like up in the hill john by yosemite kind of you should be able to society you should be able to do all that yeah. stuff and i think what will probably happen is a single life will encompass multiple like you'll do yeah. three months here three months there yeah. Taxes will have to evolve. I think the yeah. whole concept of being a citizen of a country is weird or will be weird over time because what if you're three months, three months, three, like where do you, why would you pay taxes? To, well, and only the, really the U.S. This is something I agree with Trump on. Like I, I think Trump said this, but we should get rid of the, uh, the U.S. can taxes all U.S. citizens no matter where you live. Yeah, it should be universal. It's like the it idea should, that I pay more in, in one area versus another kind of doesn't make sense. So, yeah, I think there's a lot, of, there's a lot of, but it, it, yeah, it's, that's one. And then I would say, I think the, I would say the 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 sort of vegetarian trend and vegan trend is not going to happen. I would, mm. um, yeah. I think there's like this universal idea that meat will be a thing of the past, and I'm just pretty skeptical. Do you think it takes significant share? I think it will be big. I yeah. think it will be like twenty, thirty, forty percent. But I don't think eating meat will be unethical. 
I, th- I think that's unlikely to go away. And I think there's nothing wrong with this idea that we kill animals. I think we'll likely see a like a, a reversion to the mean a little bit on that long term. Yeah. I also just think in general, like for example, let's say I go from eating red meat 10 times a week to one time a week, which is roughly what I've done, I feel like. I'm 90% vegan. Yeah. So I'm like pretty good. I have some friends and some acquaintances that are vegans and they're pretty bullish. I think with the Beyond Meat IPO and all that stuff, the future of veganism. But my perspective actually is I don't have the same exact worldview than them on that particular issue, but I respect it. I respect anyone that puts their money where their mouth is. Similarly, actually, and I've, I've had this discussion with them and it's kind of a bit of a weird thing to say to a vegan. I have more respect for the hunter that goes and has respect for the animal and goes and kills his own food in the wilderness and really utilizes every aspect of the animal than paying someone else to to do that. Now, yeah, that, like, yeah. I don't have an issue with that morally, but if I did, if I did have a moral problem with it, yeah. that's the one of the weakest yeah. positions. And I actually, I'm sort of moving in the direction of, I don't need to meet all the time. And actually it's not even an ethical concern. It's more like a health concern. <laughs> like I don't want to be eating yeah, too much red meat. And so I think there's a reducitarian middle ground. Yes. Yeah, so I agree, on, I agree on reversion to the mean, probably being the outcome there. Yeah. So I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I also just think we don't really know the environmental effects and health effects of some of this vegan production. Yeah. Like, I'm not convinced. I'm a kind of a paleo type person. I believe in Lindy kind of eating habits. And yeah. I, I've eaten Impossible Burger and it's great. It's I think it's a good thing overall. But you look at the ingredients list on that thing and I'm like, eh, I'm not convinced. From and it's health, early days. From right? a health standpoint, like, it eh, doesn't seem like a net the, Yeah, the healthy thing to do here is probably... <laughs> just to have a salad so, yeah, or just to have a steak, exa- but yeah. not to have that. Yeah, the, I, I have a tweet that I've never tweeted or I thought that I've never tweeted because I'm scared of the of the... Of the, the onslaught yeah but uh it's basically something along the lines of like the healthiest people i know are either vegans or only eat meat yeah like i think both sides can work and be healthy sure but in general it's a paleo type people that i know it's it's more the idea that it's something you're aware of and intentful yeah. about mm-hmm. than like this what it eat whatever but if you do either you're probably fine right you know because there's some intentionality behind it I, I agree these next two questions i think you've already answered so i think i'll probably skip them what's a problem you're concerned about that most people aren't or what's a problem most people are concerned about that you aren't i honestly don't think climate change is that big of a deal Compared to what most people think. I mean, I'm using the anchor of like, I'm Bernie. Like like the world is ending in six years or 12 years. Yeah, Bernie said something like this. The thing is, I don't know what they actually mean by it either. They they say something like, there's a point of no return. Yeah, the point of no return thing, which I, I think historically we've had a point of no return for a while is my guess. I actually just rewatched Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth. And he Mm -hmm. actually, nothing he says there is like wrong. I just think we don't really know the impact. And I wish we could have more agreement on that yeah like for example the ice caps are melting 100 percent, totally it's in just ar- a fact. inarguable we don't really know what that means if you look at what al gore was implying he never actually said this but what he was kind of implying at least when i was watching it recently he was implying that like co2 uh he was making a connection between like ice caps melting co2 levels in the, in the atmosphere and global warming and this sort of temperature mm-hmm. and saying that there's like an insane correlation between co2 since then, we have not seen actually CO2 levels and average temperatures being so aligned, which was kind of the, the, the scary thing about that movie was like, it was literally going up yep. in this kind of cyclical Up way. and to the right in a bad and way. And then like, boo! Like literally he takes the crane and he goes up on the crane. And if you look at that- The graph hockey sticks in a very it's, negative it's way. It's literally like the, the earth will be a ball of fire mm-hmm. in, in a certain amount of time, which obviously like you're taking a 
you know, yeah. the scale is long. The time I don't remember the exact time scale, but I just think that sort of apocalyptic attitude yeah. is not super effective. And also, I I think we just need to really get around to the idea that like it is an agency. As I mentioned, like I have a lot more respect for agency as I used to, and I mm-hmm. do believe that sort of the ultimate answer is technology and empowering mm-hmm. people to make decisions about their lives. Yeah. And people should eat less red meat, probably, yes. But forcing people or saying it's immoral or I just don't think is effective. Mm. And saying like it's all the rich corporations and stuff that are causing climate change. I'm like, well, who pays them? We do. Like we drive cars. Consumers, customers pay them. You can't get rid of, you just can't. You would literally just, and this is, I think, the fear around Bernie Sanders is you'd literally just destroy industries. Sure. Because of the heightened urgency around it. The thing that I don't love about the climate change debate is you can't have one. Like You can't actually have the, any sort of discussion. You the can't. discussion we're having now is- It's also impossible to run any test on. Right. Like the earth is a single system. There's no counterfactual. We still can't predict the weather tomorrow. Right. So like we can't. I mean, it's like just a fact. So I think that we just don't know. And scientists will tell you that. Like they'll say, look, these things are happening. We don't know the impact of it. At least that's the honest answer. Uh, last question. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? It's the advice I give everybody, which is like super boring. And I think everyone hates hearing it, but it's just like, just start like whatever you want to do. Like you have to do it. I really believe that unless that doing leads to death or something like unrecoverable, everything else is kind of going to make you stronger. And there's no secrets. I interface in a lot of different politics and business and like creators and, you know, creators subdivides into, you know, musicians and filmmakers and comedians. And you look at any path and it's, you do a lot of it. You get really good. You get feedback. You put it out there. You do that a bunch of times. Eventually, like you have an audience that wants to buy your shit. You do it. You're independent. You do whatever you want. You know, yeah, that's like the Joe Rogan story. That's like the Naval story. That's my story. That's the JK Rowling story. It's the pretty common story. It's probably been similar for a while. And so I think a lot of people, they just hunger for knowledge. Is I think the downside of Twitter, I think is it gets easy to procrastinate Mm -hmm. in that way. And you think you're getting better and smarter and right. But you're not actually doing anything. The knowledge without the application is pretty empty and worthless. And yeah, it's like, what's the point? And I think it's fine to be like, look, this is fun. It's entertainment for me. That's kind of how I look as long at as you acknowledge that most that's of the time. what it is. But if you're pretending that this is helping you, like there's a podcast I love called Writing Excuses, and it's meta because you're listening to this podcast because you yeah. don't want to write. But it's like, look, if I, I want to write books, and guess the way I'm going to do that is by writing hundreds of thousands of words. There's no real other way around it. And it seems like from the the emails and mostly DMs that I get, like people are looking for an out of hard work, and it's like, no, sorry. But I think if you if you follow Naval and stuff. The number one thing I feel like you should take away from Naval is like he has a CS degree and he yeah. knows how to code. Yeah. And I think a lot of people follow him and like get really about all the other stuff and the spirituality. And I'm like, yeah, but this guy is telling you to scale yourself and like writing and coding and producing content or building technology and software is the, is the best way to do that in our world. So ignoring that, you're ignoring the most important thing he says. Sure. And listening to all the other stuff. But actually that thing is really 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 yeah, i'm not telling everyone they should do anything uh really but like just just you know yeah the only way things in life are going to compound is if you start you need exactly. to start and you need to go through the ups and the downs and if yeah. you do that and you're persistent enough with it you will see the compounding effect of effort exactly i think it's in almost inevitable unless your your effort is so asymptotic but it's rarely true yeah i think especially in podcasting or writing or any, anything software kind of enabled you're always going to see yeah. a kind of a, a, a curvilinear growth 
or an S curve or something like that. And Gumroad is certainly seeing it. Like I just stuck it with it long enough and it's like, oh shit, maybe there's something yeah. in here after all. Totally. <laughs> Who knows? So. Well, thanks for uh, joining me on the podcast. It's been an amazing discussion. Yeah. It's so cool to Welcome. meet someone for the first time yeah. and just record the conversation. <laughs> it's not, I've actually only done that a couple of times, That's but uh, it's been a lot of fun. So thanks for, thanks for You're coming You're welcome. On. That was really fun. We appreciate you taking the time to join us for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. We're aiming for commute length conversations with original thinkers that will push your perspective and pull you into the marketplace of ideas. If you're new to the podcast, we encourage you to check out our previous episodes. In episode number seven, I chatted with venture capitalist and former journalist, Catherine Boyle, about the rise of citizen journalism amidst the breakdown of institutional trust, Balaji Srinivasan's coverage of the coronavirus, and her opinion that we're about to enter a golden age of journalism. Well, it's interesting because we're talking about this in the U.S. context, and what I love about the Balaji story is that he is somewhat railing against the Chinese press. Or, yeah. or lack thereof. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things that he's pointing out is that, you know, a lot of the misinformation that's happening or the reason why you need to be a citizen journalist when you're talking about coronavirus is because there's a lot of misinformation coming from the state. And, you know, I think the citizen journalism that we've seen globally over the last decade because of Twitter has been extraordinary and necessary, particularly in places that don't have a First Amendment. The shock that we're seeing now, and to your point about, you know, the, you know, CEOs kind of fighting back, I think that's surprising to institutions because they've always held so much power. And I, you know, I think we'll definitely see more of that. But I want to actually say that, you know, as a former journalist, I think you know, this is a weird thing to say in some ways, but I actually do think we are entering another golden age of journalism. People always talked about kind of the advertising era where journalists could do these incredible stories in a centralized fashion. I think what we're seeing now is that a multitude of voices are going to be constantly debating in a public sphere. And that's going to lead people to make their own decisions. We already have to question everything. And that's a good thing. In episode six, we chatted with author and entrepreneur Kamal Ravikant about how your internal mentality can really shape your external reality. I think, you know what? There's something bigger than me going on. Something bigger than this animal self. Whatever that is, you know, I don't think that the software that we run around and hardware is designed to actually figure the whole thing out, but it's been trying to figure this out forever and there is something there. So the way I look at it is how do I make it practical? How do I make this kind of knowledge practical? The one thing that helps us, it actually brings me back to more and more, okay, if this is the case, then the software that I'm running, the inside, affects <laughs> affects the whole thing. That's mm-hmm. the theory I have. And so like work on the inside, the outside gets better. A quick housekeeping note, we just launched a new website for the podcast at paradoxpodcast.co, which will have all episodes and everything you need to know about the podcast. If you enter your email address and subscribe, you'll get new episodes sent directly to your inbox one to two days early. And you can always drop us a line on the contact form. We read every single message and really value constructive feedback. That's a wrap for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. If you'd like to connect, you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Tibbetts. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes to spread the word. And until next time, take care of yourself.